Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Milan Elkabout, most recently a research fellow and head of the Climate Policy Program at CEPS, which is a leading think tank and forum for debate on European Union, or EU, affairs. He has been working in Brussels in the Climate and Energy Unit of CEPS since late 2014, but I'm very pleased to report that he'll be joining Resources for the Future as one of our newest fellows in October of 2023. Milan's research focuses on EU climate policy, in particular on the EU Emissions Trading System, or ETS, and on industrial decarbonization policies. So today we're going to introduce you, our wonderful listeners, to Milan, and then spend the bulk of our time talking about the EU reaction to the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. Uh, It's been a bit of a wild ride, I'd say, over the past year, as the EU has responded to the IRA, and we'll hear more about it from someone who has followed those developments closely. Stay with us. Hi, Milan. Welcome to Resources Radio and to Resources for the Future. It's really great to be able to introduce you to our listeners, who I think will probably see more and more of your name. Uh, Hi, Kristen. Yeah, it's uh, really great to be uh, here. I'm also at RFF in general. Really excited. Great, great. Well, uh, this is a bit of a special type of episode in that we're introducing both you and your areas of expertise. So given that, I want to start with two welcome questions, which is one more than I usually give myself. But first, let me start with the usual one, uh, which is about your background and how you ended up working on climate policy in particular. Uh, sure. So uh, about 10 years ago, I was doing my my master's uh, in London uh, in political economy. Uh, and I had to pick a topic. And after some hesitation, where I initially wanted to write about the Eurozone crisis, uh, I ended up with uh, yeah, this system called uh, the Emissions Trading System, the biggest EU climate policy. And yeah, then started writing about how uh, allowances or the, the certificates are allocated in that system. Uh, and that was quite a consequential choice. Uh, uh, as it proved to be later. Um, so after finishing my master's, I started an internship uh, at SEPS. Uh, and it was also um, yeah, the ETS that was my main topic uh, to work on there. Uh, and at SEPS, uh, yeah, I stayed for um, quite some time, uh, right up until uh, September of this year, uh, actually. And um, yeah, the ETS is a very important climate policy for uh, the EU. Uh, and about half of the emissions uh, that that system covers uh, in the EU uh, relate to energy-intensive industry, so from steel, cement, chemicals, uh, other basic material producers. Um, and it quickly became um, obvious that uh, when you talk about those industries, you need to consider much more than just um how uh, a carbon price signal uh, is working and that you might need a much broader policy mix to actually get those sectors to uh, to net zero emissions by 2050 which is for a while already the uh, uh, the long-term objective of your climate policy um, and so um, yeah started talking more about industrial policy as well and um, all sorts of other uh, uh, mechanisms that can help these sectors decarbonize Fantastic. Uh, 
Now I'm going to turn to my second introductory question, knowing that we'll get to talk about the substance of the EU ETS and industrial decarbonization in a bit. But um, I am very curious. You are coming to Washington from Brussels. Uh, what are you most excited about in terms of moving here to Washington, D.C.? And I'm purposefully not making this a work-related question. So, of course, you're welcome to answer in terms of the work that you'll be doing here at RFF. But you can feel free to answer however you'd like. Uh, sure. No, I'm also just really excited to discover uh, Washington as a city. I actually don't know the city very well yet. It's uh, my second trip here now after uh, visiting for a few days in March. Um, but I guess like Brussels, Washington is both uh, yeah, a major political hub, but also a very vibrant and international city. And that's always great to live in. Um, I've been to the U.S. Uh, quite a few times, but never really this part of the country. So also yeah, just really looking forward to uh, discover how it's like. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm a little jealous, to be honest. Uh, I've lived here a long time, and it's always fun to be someplace new. There's definitely an energy in that. So welcome. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about the EU response to the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. Uh, and right, that is kind of the main substance of our conversation today. And uh, we're just past the one-year anniversary of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really, I think it's fair to say, a seminal U.S. climate policy. But I think it's also fair to say that uh, it's ruffled a few feathers in the EU, even as the Biden administration has really been celebrating its passage. So let me start by asking, overall, how would you characterize the EU's response to the IRA? So the initial reaction um, was a bit embarrassing, I thought, from the European side. Uh, I mean, it was passed, I think, sometime in, you know, in August then, uh, when most of Europe is very quiet. And then throughout September and October, you heard increasing discussion and rumors, and it was all very negative um, because uh, most of yeah, discussion was about how these tremendous subsidies and tax credits would make it much more difficult for European producers uh, to compete. Uh, and some Europeans also had a, yeah, a little bit of a, a smugness that it was the only major economic bloc passing very serious climate policy. Uh, so it was also uh, genuinely a bit of a surprise to see the U.S. Uh, finally acting with a very large, significant federal uh, climate policy. Um, but then, yeah, Europeans weren't really acknowledging that um, it's actually very good that that is happening, uh, even if it might create some challenges uh, for the EU. Uh, luckily, after a few months, uh, that debate became a lot more balanced and there was also a bit more emphasis on well, the fact that even if the U.S. is subsidizing some uh, technologies that there might be other uh, countries in the world benefiting uh, from that and maybe also that uh, European producers um, can benefit f directly from some of the, the tax credits. In addition, yeah, the EU came up uh, with their own political strategy, um, not officially in response uh, to the IRA, but yeah, it really was in response. clearly actually in response to the IRA. Right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and quite a, it's not just about the IRA there, because we also had a, an energy crisis uh, in Europe at the same time, more linked to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But there's a lot of good things in those proposals, also a few bad things, um, but altogether, yeah, I think it will make um, 
European and global climate policy stronger over time. Hmm. Okay. Well, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about the response, and in particular, the kinds of policy reactions that the European Union had. But um, yeah, so let's let's start there. And it uh, sounds like it was a mixed response. And it sounds like folks in the European Union were particularly frustrated with the IRAs, what, what are called by American provisions, which really give preference to um, American producers, materials that are uh, developed in the United States. So can you just say a little bit more about those provisions in particular, and which industries they're most likely to affect? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, for us, the way the uh, the IRA is set up is um, yeah, quite novel uh, because uh, the EU has a very small budget itself. Most of the money comes from the member state itself, and uh, the type of subsidies that uh, the IRA gives are quite hard to uh, to copy at the EU level. And then we saw that uh, the more is happening in the US itself with uh, yeah, local sourcing, uh, the more generous these subsidies become. And that really seemed to give uh, an advantage to domestic US producers, which was seen as coming at the cost of European producers. Uh, and this was particularly relevant for uh, the EV, uh, electric vehicle uh, tax credits. And this is also exactly where um, you know, Europeans see um, European producers as being particularly strong. The German car industry is a bit the pride of its country, but France, Italy, a lot of other member states have at least part of the automotive uh, value chain. Uh, so here, uh, the more protectionist elements of the Inflation Reduction Act were definitely quite controversial. And were they surprising? Uh, I feel like there has been enough of a conversation happening in the U.S. that perhaps it shouldn't have been as much of a surprise that there were these kind of multiple policy goals that the Biden administration was trying to meet with the IRA. But if they were frustrating, did they also come as a surprise or were folks just kind of sorry to see them ultimately, but ultimately not that surprised to see them? No, it's a good question. I think there still was some genuine surprise, but maybe it's also just that we as Europeans didn't pay enough attention. Uh, but there still was the expectation that uh, the U.S. is uh, the ultimate sort of free trade economy um, and the old Washington consensus uh, and how the World Trade Organization operates. Uh, a lot of the IRA provisions really seem to go yeah, right against that old sort of 1990s uh, consensus. Uh, so it was still a bit of a shock, but it's also true that yeah, there was a lot of discussion on uh, also the yeah, the elements related more to having more manufacturing in the U.S., which is yeah, a priority that European policymakers have just as much. Um, maybe the uh, the anti-China uh, elements of the IRA, which yeah, there might be some differences there between the U.S. and Europe. Interesting. Uh, well, you've started mentioning a little bit of kind of some of the industries that might be affected. Can you Can you go into a little bit more detail about what the EU sees as the potential negative outcomes of these provisions? Um, just tell us what they're most afraid of. And that is, of course, is negative from an EU perspective. Uh, yeah, no, in a very simple way, uh, the EU uh, sees itself as doing pretty ambitious climate policy for 20, 30 years already. Uh, 
and it also wants to have um, yeah, the economic benefits of supporting these incipient green industries. And then particularly for uh, the automotive value chains, since uh, there's still quite a few significant uh, European um, car producers, uh, they would want um, the future electric vehicles to also be very much produced in Europe. Uh, and there's also uh, a quite recent example of something that turned out a bit painfully for uh, the EU, namely uh, renewables and solar PV uh, in particular, photovoltaics, in that it was really European subsidies that created the initial market for it and brought down the costs, but then all the manufacturing very quickly moved to China. Uh, so that was really an example where um, you know, some of the more populist parties uh, in Europe could easily attack um, you know, European climate and energy policy as just being wasteful. Uh, especially if you don't care too much about the emissions reduction aspect. Mm -hmm. So they were concerned that that uh, shifting of manufacturing would in fact move to the U.S. this time, not to China, but a similar phenomenon would take place? Uh, exactly. Yeah. And okay. then you know, China has never been uh, a country sort of economically aligned uh, with Western countries, with OECD countries, even though there's... Uh, ever more trade. Uh, but then the US, again, was seen as being uh, also one of the pillars of the free trade system. So if we then even need to worry about the US and the UK already having taken uh, a different turn with Brexit, that um, yeah, it sort of announced a very different um, international trade system. Mm, okay. Well, so let's go back to that question then of how the EU responded. Uh, you mentioned that there was, in fact, a reaction. There were some new um, policy ideas floated, potentially even some new things that became law. So how did the EU as a whole, in the short term, in the medium term, or maybe even as individual member countries, how did they respond? And did they sort of adapt existing policies or take whole new approaches under consideration in response? Uh, yeah, a bit of uh, both, actually. Um and the structure of uh, the EU becomes quite important here because uh, you know, when we say the EU, we often mean you know, these supranational institutions, the European Commission and Parliament, who um, you know, can, together with the member states, make laws that apply to all European uh, countries, or at least the members. But the EU does not have that much money in and of itself uh, so when we talk about European subsidies, a lot of times um, those are provided by member states themselves from their national budget, something we call state aid. Um, and state aid for since the 1950s is considered a bad thing because um, the larger and richer countries can easily outcompete the very small ones like Estonia, for example, uh, and many others. Uh, so we always had rules in place that uh, try to prevent uh, member states from subsidizing their own industries. Um, in the pandemic, a lot of these rules got suspended because that was necessary anyway to keep the whole economy afloat. But then uh, it became very attractive to start subsidizing more. And with the U.S. doing massive subsidies with the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of yeah, member states are doing the same now, uh, especially Germany, uh, France, Netherlands. Uh, but the the member states that do not have as deep 
um, pockets as these northwestern European countries uh, are protesting a bit against it and they want to see you know, subsidies at the EU level uh, so that everyone can benefit from it. So there's also been a few uh, altogether new proposals. It's called uh, the, the Green Deal Industrial Plan. And industry is both about um, well, the energy intensive industries, but much more about just having an industry to produce low carbon or climate friendly technology. So also all the batteries and renewables, etc., ideally within Europe. And that's quite similar, I think, as what uh, the Inflation Reduction Act tries to do. Um, there's two components then to it. One is related to critical raw materials, where there's also a bit of um, yeah, a geopolitical dimension with uh, the war in Ukraine and the Net Zero Industry Act, uh, which really focuses a lot on permitting and on uh, other internal market rules that should make it easier to uh, invest and deploy these technologies. Um, on subsidies then, so it is going to be easier for member states to give IRA-like subsidies if they want. Uh, but there's also the idea with many analysts that, well, we perhaps shouldn't give as many subsidies because we already have um, a carbon price signal with uh, the ETS. And if we make the polluters pay for their CO2 emissions, is it then really necessary to yeah, give the same amount of uh, subsidies because... Yeah, ideally the ETS already makes it more attractive to invest in the new low carbon technologies. So not everyone agrees uh, with that point of view, but we also now see a mechanism that's quite clever that tries to combine a bit of both uh, so-called carbon contracts for difference. Uh, you give a subsidy, but you correct it for um, the carbon price that already exists so that uh, it can fluctuate uh, and also make it more cost effective. It sounds like a number of proposals have been put forward. How many of them are actually solidifying into things that will in fact, are these still just ideas that are out in the mix or how many of them are, are certain ones rising to the top at this point and likely to actually uh, turn into the implementation phase? No, the, that's an important point. Uh, there are legislative proposals. Uh, usually an EU legislative proposal takes about a year to pass, sometimes two. Uh, it needs to go to well, the slow grinder of EU policy making. Uh, that's not done yet, but I'm quite confident it will happen. Uh, but there's still some yeah, intensive uh, political discussions on the scope and which technologies should be favored, for example, by the Zero Industry Act. Uh, carbon capture is explicitly listed, not all member states uh, like that. For example, um, a country like France would also like to always support nuclear energy, but others are uh, very much against that. And then, yeah, on state aid, I mean, member states can do that uh, whenever they want. Um, but yeah, it also really depends on the, the economic conditions and the political conditions in different member states. How much of these kind of ideas that are being floated in the EU right now are in fact ideas that had been circulating but just didn't have a lot of momentum behind them versus things that were really envisioned directly as a response to the IRA, if that question makes sense. Sort of, were these were these only envisioned in reaction to the U.S.'s actions or had they actually, did that just sort of give them a nudge to have more momentum? Well, it seems like a question that will make a beautiful thesis <laughs> at some point. Um, 
No, you're absolutely right that some ideas have been floating around for some time and France and Germany as the most powerful EU countries have been wanting to have a more muscular EU industrial policy since five years already and they put out so-called non-papers really pushing the commission in that direction but a lot of other member states and the European Commission were dead set against it because yeah, the EU isn't really supposed to do industrial policy according to uh, the EU treaties. Um, so it's been controversial and competition policy, um, a part of it is something where the EU is very strong. But if you want to do yeah, more subsidies, etc., you also make your competition policy just yeah, a bit more generous, not as strict. Um, and not everyone agrees with that. Uh, there's also a few ideas which um, yeah, definitely are 100% in response to the Inflation Reduction Act. The most obvious example is that um, with these state aid rules, if a member state can point to any other country saying, well, look, the US is giving a subsidy of this amount, then that member state can just mirror it and do the same thing. And that's... Um, yeah, an easy way to give subsidies that definitely would have been illegal in the past. Mm, interesting. Okay. This is all very fascinating. So I want to ask another kind of big picture question then. And you mentioned at the beginning that you have studied and are particularly interested in political economy questions. And I think this counts as a political economy question. So I wanted to ask, in your view, do you think that these developments, these kind of the passage of what can be seen as an industrial policy in the U.S., the reaction from the EU, the more muscular industrial policies that are coming out across the board. Could that signal or perhaps even spur a new era of protectionism? Uh, yes, absolutely. And this is a risk that a lot of people um, in Europe also want to guard against. Uh, I don't mean this in a way that uh, we should move away from uh, the industrial policies that are being passed now. I think even yeah, the very generous tax credits of the IRA can have a lot of yeah, positive spillovers for uh, well beyond the US. Uh, but there is a bit of a risk of um, fragmenting the trade system very much and thereby also creating barriers in the trade system for the diffusion of low-carbon technology. Um, so ideally, I I would hope that both the EU, the US, Japan, South Korea, or other uh, sort of yeah, significant industrial economies definitely still get together in multilateral fora and maybe agree on certain rules uh, and standards for low carbon technology that facilitates their uh, deployment and maybe also so that we can limit um, yeah, the very more retaliatory uh, policies in the EU. We have the carbon border adjustment mechanism now. That's also in place because um, you know, Europe is moving ahead with a very strong carbon pricing system that applies to its own industries. Uh, but if everyone starts doing the same and the same thing with very generous subsidies, there is the potential for just wasting uh, taxpayer resources, which comes at a cost. So industrial policy is good, but it needs to be balanced. Mm -hmm. And what are those? What are those fora in which these kind of thorny issues 
can get discussed. Obviously, one of the things that you and I have been talking about is there, you know, these international climate negotiation processes that kind of culminate in the COPs every year. Um, I don't know enough about organizations like the WTO to know kind of what the flow of trade conversations look like. But are there actually avenues, whether super formal or informal, just between the US and the EU, that even as they're passing these policies, they do have avenues to discuss how ultimately to harmonize and to sort of have the rising tide lift all those boats together? Uh, so I think the formal institutions, such as the World Trade Organization, it's just not that time anymore uh, at the moment. Uh, that type of multilateralism is very difficult in the current uh, geopolitics, but more informal arrangements um, yeah, will be very good. And between the US and the EU, there are these um, yeah, so-called GASA talks on uh, steel and aluminium tariffs that were first introduced by Trump, but maintained by Biden, uh, they can have a stronger climate dimension and that could also be expanded into you know, something sometimes called a, a climate club or alliance, which I know RFF is also working on. Um, and it doesn't have to be super formalized, but there are many aspects of things like steel uh, decarbonization where just agreement on what certain concepts mean, how you measure embedded carbon can already make other policies a lot more streamlined. Uh, so those type of informal arrangements, I would um, definitely hope um, keep on being supported. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Well, definitely a topic to watch. Certainly something that, as you noted, we are watching very closely at RFF. And I think even more so with your arrival in uh, just a little while here. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I do want to close uh, the podcast with our regular feature, which we call Top of the Stack. And I would love to invite you to recommend some content that our listeners might want to enjoy. It could be content of any type on this topic or otherwise. But let me let me wrap up by asking you, Milan, what's on the top of your stack? Uh, sure. So, I mean, given that we talked a lot about uh, industrial policy today, uh, I mean, there is one um, quite well-known uh, economist who's been writing about industrial policy for far longer um, than uh, it's been popular again, uh, which is Danny Roderick, and together with uh, two other uh, academics, Yuha uh, Shan Lane, he's been yeah, currently writing an article called The New Economics of Industrial Policy. Uh, and that seems incredibly relevant um, in the current discussion. It also looks at East Asia's uh, experience in the 1970s again. So I guess there's a lot to learn from that. Great. All right. Well, thanks. Welcome. And I'll talk to you again soon. Uh, thanks a lot, Kristen. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. 
RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.